we give this time to you, we lift this time up to you, Lord, and um, as we study this um, pretty tragic passage, uh, God, affects so many things down the road, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, um, that you would bring conviction, Lord, that you'd also bring encouragement, uh, but, but God, I, I think first and foremost, there's a reality that you reveal this passage to us to show us what not to do, uh, God, and, and to warn us of, of certain things in our life, uh, Lord, um, even the man after your own heart is, um, has the potential to fall. God, so I pray that you would speak to us profoundly, powerfully, that you would fill us with your spirit and guide us in your truth. In your name, amen. All right. So we see, obviously, David is extremely blessed by God. He was the king of Judah. Now he's the king of all of Israel. He's conquering nations left and right, the surrounding nations. He's advancing the kingdom of God, literally the promised land. Uh, they have more of the promised land during David's rule than any other time throughout the history of Israel. So God's favor is heavily upon David. Then we see in the last couple chapters, the way David responds, to God's favor. He says, hey man, I want to bestow some kindness to other people. God's been so kind to me. He's been so gracious to me that I want to extend this kindness to someone else. So first he finds Mephibosheth, right? Jonathan's son that was lame. And though Mephibosheth was in hiding and he was thinking that David was going to have him killed because that was the cultural norm, right? If you had uh, the previous king and his lineage, you would want to wipe them out when you be- when you came into power. But that's not how David responds. He actually takes Mephibosheth in and he allows him to sit at his table and he just takes care of this guy for the remainder of his days. Then in the last chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, David attempts to extend kindness to another man. It was the king of Ammon. His father had just died. So David, if you recall, he sends these guys to, uh, to comfort him. Uh, he sends his servants and, and Hanan, the king of Ammon, he, his elders tell him, hey, 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 uh, David's just deceiving you. He's sending these people as spies, right? To check out the kingdom. It's not real kindness. It's fake. Well, this ends up leading to a war that the Israelites are still in as we study these next few chapters, this war against the Ammonites. Hanan rejected the kindness of the king and it invited all types of warfare. Where, as the last two chapters, David was being led and moved by grace and kindness, in this chapter, we're going to see David led and moved by passion. And by lust, not a good type of passion. And we see this passion, this lustful passion, lead to complacency, which leads to compromise. And before you know it, David is in over his head and he's going to face catastrophic consequences for the decisions that he makes in this chapter. This is the title of the teaching, The Cost of Complacency and Compromise. The cost of complacency and compromise. 
See, it's easy for us to minimize our acts of complacency. But as we'll see in this chapter, those acts of complacency lead to compromise. And that complacency and compromise will cost us so much more than we were willing to lose. That's exactly what happens here with David. Let's look at the chapter. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with them and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So it's the spring of the year uh, during the winter in that culture, in that area, uh, typically there weren't battles. There wasn't warfare because it was winter and, uh, you know, lack of food, harder to travel, that type of things. So now it's springtime. So, uh, the land is in a better situation. It's more cultivated. There's food. They have harvest in the spring. So they're able to supply the armies. That's when the kings would go back out to battle against each other. And we see David, he sends Joab and his servants to fight against the Ammonites who they've been in battle against since second samuel chapter 10 but look what it says here at the end of verse one but david remained at jerusalem see david was supposed to be it says when the kings go out to battle right implying that david's supposed to be there david is supposed to be out to battle he's supposed to be leading his people and he decides to give in in a moment He chooses, because of complacency, to not be where he's supposed to be. That's point number one. Complacency keeps us from God's perfect will. Complacency keeps us from God's perfect will. God's perfect will was that David would be where he was supposed to be, fighting and leading his people. David, likely thinking, we don't know what's going through his head, but he's probably thinking, yeah, man, God, he's blessed me. I have all this stuff. Our kingdom is great. We win literally like every battle that we fight in. Like I'm basically untouchable. I've been fighting for a long time, not to mention all those years that I was running from Saul in the wilderness. I deserve some time off. I deserve a kickback. I deserve to relax. In Proverbs chapter 24 in proverbs chapter 24 verses 33 to 34 it says this a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of the hands to rest so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man what's what do we see solomon saying here in the proverbs it's like just those initial thoughts that i can just Take a little nap. You know what, right? I just got to take a little nap right now. And it's okay to take naps. But he's speaking spiritually here. Just a little giving into my flesh isn't going to harm me very much, right? I can check out right now. I can take a break. I mean, is it really that important that I do my devotions or read the Bible every morning? Is it really important that I pray today? Well, today, you know what? I feel like sleeping in a little bit. And I don't feel like getting up and praying. I don't feel like coming to church. I don't feel like studying. I don't feel like teaching. I don't feel like serving. I don't feel like doing any of these things. Now, yes, we need time to rest and recoup in all of that. But even in that, we got to be led by the Spirit. Because the Bible tells us that when we give into the lust of our flesh, it invites all types of destruction into our life. And it's easy for us to minimize, like, so what if I don't read 
this week, today, this week? What does it matter? So what if I don't pray this week? So what if I don't do these things this week? And we know we're saved by faith. It's not about works, but often God puts spiritual disciplines in our life to prevent us from destruction. It's grace that he gives us spiritual disciplines to walk in. Why? Because it protects us from temptation and give us, us the strength and power we need to endure the temptation. See, David... He's not where he's supposed to be. He decided to be lazy. He decided to be complacent. And now he's not in God's perfect will. See, we have God's perfect will and God's permissible will. Okay, and I'll briefly explain these. We could talk about them in length. Uh, but God's perfect will is basically us doing everything that God desires. Okay, we're where God wants us to be. We're saying what God wants us to say. We're doing what God wants us to do. And then his permissible will... That's the things he allows us to do, even though they're contrary to his will, like sin, you know, and do things that we're not supposed to do. God's perfect will was that Adam and Eve never ate, uh, ate the forbidden fruit. God's permissible will, he allowed him to do it. He didn't want him to do it. That wasn't his perfect will, but he allowed it and he's going to use it and redeem the world. We know all of that, but David right now is in God's permissible will. He's doing something that God allowed, but it's not something that God intended. And this is going to cost them dearly. See, the safest place we can ever be, you've heard it said before, is in the center of God's will. That's, there's protection there. When we step outside of the center of God's will, and we even walk in God's permissible will, we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Bible says, keep yourself in the love of God. What is that? It looks like walking in obedience to what the Lord calls me to do. It's not that I have to keep myself in the love of God to earn the love of God, or if I'm obedient, God will love me more. That's not true at all. He tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to be obedient to him so that we can experience all that he desires for us in this life. When we step outside of that, then we'll see all the chaos that it will cause as we look at the life of David. And we have to remember this. God was trying to set David up for success in the chapter before. If you recall, we talked about this last week. Remember, when Joab initially went to battle with the Ammonites, the Ammonites recruited the Syrians, um, they didn't have victory. Uh, the, the, they all fled, but there was no victory. A battle didn't even take place. It wasn't until David came on the scene and led his army to the battle that he was victorious. God was trying to teach David back then that if you're not leading your people in battle... Not only are they not going to be victorious, but you're not going to be victorious either. He was calling him to that battle to literally protect him and the nation of Israel as a whole. That battle was the grace of God. So he tries to teach him that in the last chapter. But in this chapter, he forgets the lesson and he doesn't go to fight when he's supposed to fight. As we mentioned last week, God often calls us to battles to protect us. The Bible says it like this. It's Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. In Galatians 5 16. It says. I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another said that you do not do the things that you wish. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are uh, sorry, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Walk in the Spirit, and, and you're not going to fill, fill the lusts of the flesh. Or in other words, do what God's asking you to do. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Listen to Him. Respond to Him in obedience. And we don't have to worry about giving in to the lust of the flesh. But as soon as we give in to the lust of the flesh, when we give the lust an inch, He takes a mile. Every single time. And this is exactly what's going to happen with David. Let's see. Second Samuel chapter 11 verse 2 then it happened one evening that david arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold so we see David, it's in the evening, it's in the night, uh, and he wakes up, he gets out of bed, and he starts walking. The Hebrew word for walked here uh, implies that he was pacing back and forth, okay? Likely, we don't know for sure why he's pacing back and forth, but reason would tell us he's probably thinking, man, uh, either I'm bored or I'm convicted because I'm not where God wants me to be. You ever have sin wake you up at night or have you ever been in sin and it's caused you sleepless nights like, you know, God told you to do something that day. Maybe it was to talk to a specific individual. Maybe it was to do something kind for another person. Maybe it was even to have a confrontation and call someone out in their sin. Obviously, in love, whatever the case may be, I have this happen to me sometimes when I don't do what God's telling me to do. It's hard for me to go to sleep that night. And I wait, oh man, I know I should have, I know I should have done that. Hopefully it's not too late and I can do it tomorrow. But see, David, he, he can't sleep. And the reason that he can't sleep, at least I believe, is because he's struggling with conviction. There's that uneasiness. So he's pacing around and he sees this woman bathing and she was very beautiful to behold. See, the problem isn't that David looked and saw a beautiful woman. That's not the sin. The problem is that he lusted after her. Okay, let's make this clear. It's not a sin to notice someone beautiful. Okay, it's not a sin to notice someone beautiful of the opposite sex, of the same sex, someone that's not your spouse. God created people beautiful. That's not the sin. The sin is the lust. The lust is now I'm thinking these sexual thoughts towards this person. Now I'm undressing them with my eyes. Now I'm thinking about these things that are completely impure. That's lust. And that's where the sin comes in. Now, David, he didn't have to undress Bathsheba with his eyes, right? She's already naked. But the problem wasn't noticing her. The problem was lusting after her because that's where adultery always starts. It always starts with lust. It never just jumps to adultery. It always starts with lust. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Matthew 5, 28. He says, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, let's be clear here. Jesus isn't saying that if you lust after a woman or a man, then you already committed adultery in your heart, so you might as well just follow through with it. You, you might as well just do it. You already committed it in your heart, so what's, well, I've already sinned, I might as well just do it, right? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't even saying that they're equal. That, that, that lusting after a person in your heart is the same as committing adultery. That's not the point in what he's saying. He's saying adultery starts in the heart. Adultery starts with the lust in the heart. Surely committing adultery 
physically is worse is, and is going to cause more problems than lusting after an individual in your heart. But let's be clear, they're both sins. They're both sins. Lust in the heart and the act of adultery. But Jesus wants to recognize the issue with sin is internal before it's ever external. And as we specifically talk about the sin of lust, we see this lust came after what? After David set his eyes on something. Guarantee you if you just glance go, oh shoot, shouldn't have seen that. Walk back to his room. We wouldn't be reading this chapter. But that's not what he did. He didn't just take a glance. He glanced and he looked and he looked and he looked and he looked and he didn't stop looking. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 22. In Matthew 6 22 it says, the eyes are the lamp of the body. Literally our eyes are a gateway to our hearts. Our eyes are a gateway to our hearts, so are our ears, so are other things. But our eyes, what we set our eyes on, those things enter into our hearts. Whether it's lusting after another individual or whether it's uh, watching things that you shouldn't be watching, whatever the case may be, what we set our eyes on affects our hearts. So what do we do? Well, we know it starts with the, okay, maybe, okay, I saw that. I'm not going to look at that anymore. But if I set my eyes on it, it's going to cause more problems. Job said in Job 31, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to look at a young woman. I'm not even going to give myself the temptation to fall into lust, which could lead to adultery. Had David made that same covenant, he wouldn't get into the problems that he's going to get into. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. <clears throat> So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David, what does he do? He inquires of her. One more step. Okay. Complacency. Now I'm lusting. Now I'm going to go. I'm going to holler at her. I'm going to get her number. So that's what he does. He inquires, who who is this woman? I'm going to ask my friend to ask her. I want to just find out who this person is, right? Continuing to give into his lust. And then what happens? He gets a report back of who this person is. And we got to take note of this. These are all warning signs. Look at these people. The daughter of Eliam. If you want to write some of this down, we're not going to flip there for time's sake. Okay, so Eliam in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, which we'll get into later he was one of david's mighty men okay so one of this is the daughter of one of david's mighty men okay if that's not bad enough Eliam's father in 2 Samuel 15, 12 2 Samuel 15, 12 was a fifth of fell who was one of David's counselors and was in the king's court. So he's really close with the father and with the grandfather. He works alongside of these guys. These people are willing to die for him. Not only that, we see Uriah is one of the mighty men as well. So three generations, he is tight with this family. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we see that Uriah is one of the mighty men that are listed there as well. So David is so close to this family. These people aren't just friends, they're servants, and they're also companions. Uriah, in this very moment, is out fighting for David, risking his life for David. These are all warning signs. You're going to sleep with your friends, granddaughter, daughter, wife, Like, that's what the message is here. God was giving him enough information so that he would steer clear of this. He had plenty of reasons not to move forward. Yet he didn't. 
The Bible talks about this way of escape that God gives us, right? It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. These men are David's way of escape, but he's not going to take the way of escape. See, the Lord, when we fall into complacency, because complacency precedes compromise, before we get to the compromise, God says, hey, I'm going to give you a way of escape. You got to be looking for it, and you got to see it, and you got to walk out that door. Go through the way of escape, but sometimes we miss the warning signs. It could be a message. It could be a phone call. It could be a text. It could be an encounter with another individual running into somebody. Um, wherever you are, God can use so many different ways to give us that way of escape. But we got to be in tune with it. David may have understood that, but he certainly didn't walk through the door of escape, if you will. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4. Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. So he blatantly disregarded all the warning signs, all of them. He kept giving in, giving in, giving in. All of a sudden, he takes her, and it says he lay with her. He slept with her. Point number two, complacency causes compromise. Complacency causes compromise. He went from being complacent, not being where he was supposed to be, to being tempted, to giving into the temptation, which is ultimately compromise. Now, we would miss the point here if we thought that the only reason this happened is because David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Okay, that is a big reason why, but it's not the only reason. This all started, this complacency and compromise, it started long ago. When did it start? Well, as far as I can tell from the scriptures, it started when David started marrying multiple wives. Why? Because when David started marrying multiple wives, that was completely contrary to what God desired a king to do. As we've discussed before, Deuteronomy chapter 17 lays out the requirements for a king. And one of those things, they're not supposed to multiply wives. They're only supposed to have one wife. See, David's complacency and compromise started when he disregarded the word of God. That's when it happened. When he disregarded the word of God. When he minimized the direction of God. See, when we're complacent in our pursuit of God. And pursuing that relationship with God. And when we disregard his word and we say, yeah, okay, that applies to other people, but it doesn't apply to me. Then we're bound to compromise. When we disregard the word of God, once again, it causes so much chaos and commotion in our lives. And this starts early. See, David, had he regarded the word of God and listened to the direction in Deuteronomy chapter 17, then all this other stuff likely would have never happened. But he didn't. That's why it's so important for us to be diligent in our pursuit of the Lord and, and honor his word. Because here's the reality. 
if I'm complacent towards God's word in the morning, almost guaranteed I'm going to compromise by the afternoon. If I'm completely disregarding God's word, it's like, dude, whatever, you know, I'm not going to get any word. And I know what the word says, but I'm, I'm going to ignore God's direction. When I do that in the beginning of the day, I'm very likely to compromise by the end of the day. This is exactly where David is at. But we also have to consider something else. As we mentioned, David has tons of wives. I forget at this point. I I think like five or six at this point. Don't quote me on that. I'll get back to you, but it's somewhere around there. He has like five or six wives. So why doesn't he sleep with one of his other wives? See, this wasn't a loneliness issue. This was a lust of the flesh issue. It wasn't about, oh, I don't have someone. I miss, I don't, my wives are gone and I miss someone. I need someone. It wasn't about that at all. It was about the lust of the flesh. Well, here's the reality. The lust will never be satisfied. The lust will never be satisfied. The more we feed it, the more it grows. And as we feed it, it just says, I want more, 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 more. If one wife isn't enough, a thousand will never be enough. We see that with his son Solomon, right? Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. One wasn't enough. Thousand, really, that wasn't enough either. That's why he says in Ecclesiastes, none of this stuff was ever enough. It's all vanity, but that's also the reality of our flesh. It'll never be satisfied. If we think, if I just satisfy it a little bit, maybe it'll go away. It won't. It'll grow. It'll get bigger. It'll get stronger. And before you know it, you got a thousand wives. David. He disregarded the word of God so long ago. And that's how he found himself in this situation. Now, the Bible says, if you look back at verse four, that she was cleansed from her impurity, which means she was um, over her period. When, when girls had periods in, in that time period, like they weren't allowed to come into the synagogue or the temple or anything like that until they were cleansed. And they went through a cleansing process and then they were restored back to that. It's like kind of messed up, but that's what the law said. But anyways, uh, so the irony here and the, uh, the author of this book uh, is being ironic. Though she's physically cleansed from her impurity, she's practicing sexual immorality. So she's actually spiritually impure, even though she's physically impure. This is one of the reasons that the author is bringing it up uh, to emphasize the irony here. So it says that after that, he returned her to her house. David's intentions weren't to marry Bathsheba in the beginning. He just sent her back home. He wanted what he wanted, and he sent her back home. It's horrible. But God, he had a different plan. Look at verse 5. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David. And David said, I am... Sorry. And she told David and said, I am with child. Well, this certainly wasn't part of the plan, right? That Bathsheba would get pregnant from this one night stand. Well, that was a part of God's plan. God wasn't going to allow David to get off the hook so easily. God was going to make sure that David learns his lesson through this. And part of learning the lesson, sadly, is that Bathsheba would have a child. And this child is going to end up dying in the next chapter. See, God, he actually opened Bathsheba's womb. And he used all of this in order to correct his son, to discipline the son that he loves. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. 
Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Then uh, when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. So, right, now Bathsheba's pregnant. So David's got issues, right? He's got problems. Well, one of the major problems was that the sin of adultery, the consequences for that sin was literally both the man and the woman were supposed to be stoned to death. Okay, David knows the word. He knows that. He knows because of this act, he deserves to be stoned. And now that there's a baby in the picture, it's going to be really hard to cover this up. So what does he do? Let's bring Uriah back to go sleep with Bathsheba. So they think that it's actually Uriah's kid. So she calls back. He calls Uriah uh, back to Jerusalem and he starts speaking to him. And look what he says again in verse seven. When Uriah had come to him, David asked, how is Joab doing and how the people were doing, how the war prospered, right? Like, this is so messed up. He's being so manipulative. He's being so deceitful. He doesn't care about Uriah. He doesn't care about any of this stuff right now. All he cares about is covering his own tracks. That's point number three. Compromise can lead to deceit. Compromise can lead to deceit. And I say can because it doesn't have to. But in David's case... It did. He compromised. Now he's going to deceive Uriah to try to convince the world that this kid is Uriah's. Well, we know that this isn't going to work. Just have small talk with them. Pretend everything's okay. Pretend like they're buddy-buddy when he just slept with the guy's wife. But sadly, this is often what so many of us do when we fall into sin. We just try to cover it up. We just try to hide. We just try to pretend that it's not there or it wasn't really that bad. We see this with original sin, right? In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve ate off the uh, ate, um, the forbidden fruit in the garden, what did they do afterwards? They hid. They tried to hide away. Lord, we're just going to hide from you because we're in sin. They're trying to cover it up. Maybe if he doesn't like how kids, you know, like when, when you, you close their eyes, like they feel like that you're not there anymore. It's like, okay, maybe if we close our eyes, then God won't see us anymore. Like, right? That's kind of the game that they're playing with the Lord. But it's not working. It's deceitful. And this just adds to the sin. So now we got complacency, compromise, and now we have deception in the mix. And so often we think, and I don't know what we think, like God's not going to forgive us or people aren't going to accept us. So nobody can know about my hidden sin. Nobody can know about it. That's all a lie from the pits of hell. So I don't want anyone to know about it. So I'm going to deceive people and to pretend that these things aren't actually there. But what am I doing? I'm adding on to the lie. Now I'm practicing deception. That's how it goes. Compromise. Sorry, complacency. Now I fall into compromise and I deceive people. I don't want them to know the sin that I fell into. We see this with little kids, right? You ever heard this one? You've all heard this one before, right? So when the teacher or the mom asked the kid, did you do your homework? Yeah, I did my homework. Where is it? The dog must have ate it, right? Right? The dog must have ate it. Well, it started with complacency. I didn't feel like doing my homework. Then it was uh, compromise. Uh, I, I didn't do my homework. And, and now I'm going to lie about it and deceive to cover up the fact that I was complacent and I compromised. This stuff gets learned early. You don't have to teach a kid to do this. Why? Because they have sinful nature. We all have sinful nature. It's natural for a kid to fall into this pattern just as it's natural for us to fall into this pattern. The thing is, the Lord hates deceit. 
We'll get into it a little more, I think, next week in Proverbs chapter 6. It's one of the things that he is an abomination to him. He absolutely hates deceit, not just because it bothers him, but because of the effect that it has on us. When we're living a lie, Jesus says to, tells the Pharisees, you're, you're sons of your father, the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So when we lie, we're like being like Satan, Jesus is saying. And he says, the truth will set us free. But sometimes it's not just hearing the truth that sets us free. It's about us telling the truth that sets us free. Because God says through John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise from the Lord that we got to take by faith. If I confess these things to the Lord, then he's going to forgive me. You know what else the Bible says? In James chapter 5, it says, confess to one another so that you can be healed. So if you sin against another individual, you have a responsibility not just to confess to God, but also to confess to them. And through that confession, the Bible says, you, you're not only are you forgiven now, but you're also going to experience healing. You don't have to bear that burden any longer. But David, instead of fessing up, this is an opportunity. He didn't. He tried to keep it a secret. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 8. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So obviously, as we mentioned, David was sending Uriah back to sleep with Bathsheba so he could cover up the fact that it was actually his kid. So we see David. Just building and building more and more upon this sin. More complacency, more compromise, more deceit. But that's the reality of Scripture. The Bible says sin grows. It's James chapter 1 verse 15. In James chapter 1 verse 15. It says... Almost there. James 1.15 says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's the goal. Sin doesn't just like level out. Okay, now I'm in this like level state of sin. Okay, it goes up or it goes down. It's one or the other. Either there's repentance or the sin keeps growing. It won't say the same. So if there are compromises in your life now, if they're not taken care of, guaranteed the Bible promises they're going to get worse. They're actually going to get worse until they're dealt with. And the more the, and, and the more and more they grow, the more and more we have this tendency to cover them up and cover them up and cover them up until what? Until there's so much we can't even cover it up and the Lord just blows it up in our face and be like, if you're not going to confess it, I'm going to confess it for you and I'm going to expose it and I'm going to reveal it. And that's exactly what we'll see happen in the next chapter. In Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 10. So when they told David saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, 
David said to Uriah, do you not come from, did you not come from a journey? Why did you go down? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Ooh. Right to the heart, right? Uriah, he's got integrity. His character is impeccable. He's saying, I won't even sleep with my own wife, but David actually slept with Uriah's wife. This is another way out. God's trying to teach David through the character of Uriah. Look at what Uriah wasn't willing to do for the sake of his people. You need that same heart, David. And we see in certain times, David does have that same heart. But somewhere along the line, he lost that heart and he needs to gain it back. And it's going to be through serious consequences that he finds that heart again. But the Lord is giving him an example to say, hey, man, do what he's doing, not what you're doing. He may be your servant, but your servant's acting more like a leader than you are right now. Sometimes God will bring people in our way to show us examples so that we don't keep tumbling over our sin and falling into a deeper and deeper hole. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David's adding to the sin. Now he just got Uriah drunk. And in the Bible, we see that getting drunk is a sin. In Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to write it down, it's verse 18. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. All over the Bible, it says, be sober. Now, let me clarify this. Biblically speaking, it's not a sin for everyone. Okay, I'm saying everyone to have a drink. Or to drink in moderation. It is a sin for anyone to get drunk. The Bible is clear on this. Now, this really comes down to personal conviction. If you get drunk, it's always a sin. But if you have a glass of wine or if you have a drink and you don't get drunk, it's not a sin for everyone, but it is a sin for certain people. Okay, If you're one of those people that, that one's too much and a thousand is never enough, then it's a sin for you to have a drink. But if you're someone that, okay, she wouldn't care if I said this. My grandma, she is a saint, like loves the Lord like more than anyone that I know. And she'll have like a half a glass of wine occasionally. Why? Because there are health benefits from it. And she's older and she reaps some of those health benefits. And it's funny, she never had a glass of wine until she was like 70 years old. Okay, that was the first time. And she realized she looked at it. Okay, wait, she has certain issues that it helps with. So she does that. And the Bible says, Paul tells Timothy, okay, drink for your infirmities. Okay, he doesn't say get drunk for your infirmities or get drunk to escape the issues in your life. He was saying, okay, you can use this as medicine. But it all comes down to this. In Romans chapter 14, in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, Paul, he's speaking of conviction and he says this, let each one be convinced in his own mind. Okay. Specifically, he's talking about eating food, but it applies, isn't completely black and white on. So for some people, 
It is a sin to have one drink. And if you feel convicted about having one drink and you know you should never drink, then don't. That's a sin for you. But there's the other side of it that I could say, hey, it's a sin for me to have a drink. So it's a sin for you to have a drink. And that's not biblically true. So the reality of it is we got to trust the spirit working in people. Hey, they're going to convict, uh, convict people as they partake in sins. But we got to give some of that to the Lord. The point of all of this is this. It wasn't a sin that David had a drink with his buddy Uriah. The sin is that he got him drunk. So again, he's adding to all this stuff, the deceit, now the drunkenness. It's all just building and building and building. But despite the fact that Uriah was drunk, as a man of self-control even in his drunkenness, those two things typically don't go hand in hand. He did not go down to his house. He still didn't go to sleep with his wife. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, though that he... Uh, that he may be struck down and die. So now David is getting Joab involved in this. He's getting other people involved in facilitating the cover-up of his sin. The manipulation on top of the deceit. It keeps growing and growing and growing. So he makes this elaborate plan, obviously, to have Uriah killed. He realizes he can't cover up his sin, so he might as well kill Uriah. This will take care of everything, right? It always solves the problem. Just... Keep piling it on. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 16. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. The servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittites died also. You see this? Not only Uriah dies, but all these other servants of David die. Point number four, compromise affects others. Compromise affects others. Sin doesn't just destroy us. It destroys the people around us, even the secret sins. And we might think if nobody knows, it won't affect them, right? That's not actually true, depending on what the specific sin, that conviction, it affects you personally. So it's going to affect your demeanor. And because I had this sin going on here, okay, now I'm not walking in the spirit here. So now there's not that fruit in my life and that love and that joy and all that stuff's not spreading. And it's because of the secret sin. So never convince yourself that my secret sin doesn't affect other people. It always does affect other people. This time it affects people tremendously. All these servants die and obviously Uriah dies as well. So now David is guilty of murder, right? From complacency to lust to adultery to deceit to manipulation. And now he's engaged in murder. You think he thought just staying home would cause all this? In Galatians chapter 5 verse 9, Paul hits on this. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven is always a picture of sin throughout the Bible. What he's saying is a little leaven, it spreads. As we were talking about, James Version says, it grows and its objective is to destroy us. The point is, a little complacency goes a long way. 
It'll take us a lot further than we expected it to take us. And again, it doesn't just affect us. It affects the people around us. How many people are we willing to destroy from our our little acts of complacency, our little acts of compromise? Okay, not that we're going to kill them like David did. Maybe for some of you, I don't know, hopefully not. But but it could cause destruction to their faith. It could cause destruction to their confidence. It could uh, cause destruction to fill in the blank the relationships that they have. And it all starts with this little bit of compromise, this little bit of leaven, little bit of complacency. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning war and charged the messengers saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So um, David leaves it up to Joab to, as to how he's going to have uh, Uriah killed. And Joab's like, all right. Uh, Joab probably doesn't even know why he's going to have Uriah killed. He just knows he's supposed to. So what Joab does is he goes to the wall where there are valiant men, okay, likely with arrows and uh, all kinds of stuff. And he has a group of the men come up to the wall. He separates the rest of the army. They fall back. Now, this was a foolish decision to make in warfare. And Joab knows how to fight. He's the commander of the army of Israel. So, to cover everything up, Joab gives this message to a messenger to go to David, like, okay, uh, yeah, uh, I messed up, you know, like, uh, I messed up, I made a foolish um, decision as far as the tactics of warfare go, I shouldn't have made it, I know I should have thought about this, there's stories about this in the book of Judges, the lady that threw the stone on Abimelech's head, uh, but... Let him know Uriah is dead, okay? So let him know that there's a reason why I did this so he doesn't get upset. So this message, it gets back to David. And look at what David does. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. We just had a bunch of people die. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. In other words, good job of killing Uriah, Joab. Great job. You did what I wanted. I don't care. He was like, I don't even care that these other people died. I was able to cover up my sin. Or so he thinks. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 25. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Now, 
It doesn't appear in the text that Bathsheba knew that David had Uriah killed, okay? Um, this would have probably caused some serious marital problems down the road, right? A lot of conflict. They'd need counseling for something like this. But right now, at least, it doesn't seem like she's aware of this. She might find out later in the next chapter. Um, but at this point, she probably is just thinking, oh, he, he died in battle. So she mourns. Verse 27. And when her mourning was over... David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David, he takes Bathsheba to be his wife, right? Thinking like, I'm doing something great, right? This is a way to take care of widows, right? Just marry him. Yeah, I killed her husband. I might as well take her in because that'll make me righteous. And probably people thought, because they don't know at this point that it's David's kid. Probably people thought, well, David is so righteous, man. That poor woman, her husband died and David the king took her in. Now he can give her a good life. We don't know all the reasons why David married her, but he did marry her. And she bears a son. But the most important part of this whole chapter is this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This story isn't in here to tell us that David was a perfect king or a great thing king or all these things were okay. No, all these things displeased the Lord. In fact, the literal translation of this word displeased in the Bible is that it, it was evil in the eyes of God. It was straight evil. Not just like God was like, uh, you know, you disappointed me. No, this was complete evil and wickedness in the eyes of God. So fifth point. Compromise displeases God. Compromise displeases God. Oh, actually, we'll be in Proverbs 6 today. I thought it was in the next one. I don't know. This is what happens when I study for multiple messages in a day. Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 16, these six, thing the, six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Let's look at some of these things that apply to David, okay? A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. David's done all of these. David has done literally all of these in one way or another. So all of the things that God despises the most, those are the sins that David has committed in one little chapter. Now the fact that this displeases God is going to affect David. And this message is going to get across to David in the next chapter. That his actions severely displeased God. And it's going to be God's displeasure of David that leads David to a place of repentance. And this is the truth. He's not there yet. We'll get there next week. But this always has to be the reason for our repentance. It always has to be primarily, I'm repenting of this sin because it displeases God. Not just because it affects my family. Not just because it affects my health. Not just because it affects me. But the number one reason, those reasons are good. But number one all the time has to be because this sin displeases God and it puts a barrier between me and God because God's got to be the most important thing in my life. And if I'm not uh, repenting because I'm displeasing God, 
then that repentance will likely be short-lived. The Bible refers to this as godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll also talk about this next week. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul tells us the difference is that there's different kinds of repentance. There's actually different kinds of repentance. There's sincere repentance. There's insincere repentance. There is repentance that lasts and there's re- produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In other words, he says, I know your repentance was sincere because I saw the character that it produced in your life. And I know that it was genuine godly sorrow because there was change. There was change that, change that actually lasted. See, worldly sorrow is this. Worldly sorrow is... I got caught red-handed or I got caught in my sin and I'm going to stop because of the consequences. I didn't like the consequences. God put me in time out, if you will. God uh, just uh, took this thing away from me, whatever the case may be. If I have worldly sorrow, then it's just that I'm repenting because of my consequences. But guess what? We forget about consequences. We forget about how hard things were when we did a stupid thing. That's why it's got to be about godly sorrow. As I mentioned, no, this sin, it's literally uh, put a barrier between me and God. Not that he's forsaken me or he's going to neglect me, but this sin in our life, it says it separates us from God. So we're putting separation there. And until we close the gap and we confess and we repent, there's still that separation there. Lord's like, hey, I'm waiting for you with open arms. Just repent of this thing so we can get close again, so that we can be together again. But as long as you keep practicing this stuff, there's going to be a level of separation. We'll see David later on in Psalm 32 talk about this heart, this godly sorrow. In Psalm 32, verse 1, and this is where we'll close. <clears throat> Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David's saying, man, I was so burdened with conviction. In other passages, same context, he says I was, I was aging. <laughs> Literally, years were getting taken off my life because I was burdened by this sin and I was uneasy and I was sleepless and I had this conviction and I recognized I needed to repent, but I didn't respond and I didn't confess, but ultimately, ultimately I did and And God, you wiped it all away. You forgave me. You put me back up on my feet. He said, blessed is the man who God forgives his sins. But just because God forgives doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for our sin. See, throughout the rest of David's life, up until the very end, there are going to be consequences 
for his complacency. There are going to be consequences for his compromise. And we'll get into this in more detail next week. But some of the things he loses, he's going to lose. Actually, he's going to lose four sons because of this. I'll explain this next week. There's going to be basically two civil wars that come from this. All because he disregarded the word of God long ago. And he decided it's not a problem to give into my flesh. It's not a problem to, to be a little complacent. It's not a problem to sit this one out, sit this battle. I don't need to fight today. Why? Why do I even need to get up? Why do I need to do anything? Why do I need to engage in spiritual things? Why? Because the cost of complacency and compromise is more than we want to pay. And we see through David's life, all the catastrophe that comes through these actions are absolutely devastating. I guarantee you, if David had to do it over again, he would have done things different. But the reality, he's gone now with the Lord. He can't. But we can look at this message tonight and look at this passage in Second Samuel chapter 11 and learn from David's mistakes. We don't have to keep building and building and building upon the sin that we committed so long ago. David, after he came to the Lord, he realized he was free of guilt. He still had to face consequences, but he was free of guilt. The Lord forgave him, but it came through confession and repentance. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, we thank you, God, that everything in the Word isn't just... Uh, fluff and feel good stuff we thank you that it's so real the truth of your word is so real god and we can look at stories from so long ago and recognize how they still matter and they still affect us today god and i pray that we would learn from this that we would learn from david's failure this was a man after your own heart a man that you chose a man that in his time you exalted above every other man a man that you promised the Messiah would come through his lineage. A man that loved you so much, wrote so many of the Psalms, that he was still prone to falling into temptation. God, and I pray that you would produce that humility in us, that we would recognize uh, we're not strong in and of ourselves. And, and, and when we do fall into sin, God, we would look back to you. We would recognize that you're the only one that can put us back on our feet. We wouldn't let it build on each other. We wouldn't let the complacency turn to compromise and deceit and manipulation and all these different things, Lord. We would address it before it grows into something that's out of control. God, so help us to do that. Help us recognize uh, what those things are in our life that, that we need to change. As David said, search me, O God, and know my heart, Lord. We ask that you would know our hearts and help us uh, to not fall into complacency and compromise, that you would give us the power of your spirit to walk upright and walk in repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.